You may be seated. Father, would you now take this word? To us, it just looks like English words on a page, but it is more than that. You intend to change our hearts by it. And would you do so, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Advent is always a time for the church to stop and pause amidst their regular rhythms and think about a subject matter for four weeks leading up to Christmas Day that the church needs to know. And so we are taking in the Sermon on the Mount one of three disciplines that Jesus gives us in chapter 6. One of three. The three are fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, tithing. And we're focusing for these four weeks on the nature of prayer. And as I said last week, the heartbeat of prayer the focus of Jesus' point in talking about prayer was this phrase, that until you can learn to rest in God's presence as a loving Heavenly Father, until you can learn to rest in His presence as a Father who loves you, your prayer life will never take off. It will be a discipline of duty, but never of delight. And if you try to pray in public, as we said last week, like the Pharisees did, like in 1 Kings chapter 18, like those who prayed to Baal that he might deliver them. Remember that? They said they prayed from morning until noon, calling out to him. And then Elijah prayed a very simple prayer to his God, and the Lord answered. If you pray in public to be noticed by other people, you have received your reward, the text says. But when you know that you can rest in your Father's presence, then your prayer life begins. This week, I'm going to take the first of the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to begin to go through it. And I'm not going to give you some catchy three points. I'm simply going to take the phrases of the Lord's Prayer themselves, and I'm going to walk you through them. The Lord's Prayer for us is meant to be a, a guide it is not meant to be prayed verbatim, although it can be. Luke explicitly says, when you pray, say. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. It's perfectly fine to pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim, just like we just did as a congregation. But Matthew says, when you pray, pray like this, allowing Christ's church some level of flexibility and spontaneity in their prayer life. When I was, um, when I was newly married to Lauren, her brother and her dad, um, decided to invite me on a trip with them to go slot canyoneering in Utah. And you guys have ever seen these slot canyons. They're very narrow, and you climb through these canyons, and you rappel down them. And we had a week of doing this, except we decided to take one day break, a one-day break, and go to Mount Zion National Park. And at Mount Zion, if you've ever been there, there are these massive and beautiful cliffs and plateaus and rock formations amidst this beautiful canyon. And there's one called Angel's Landing. And you walk up Angel's Landing, and as you get toward the top, you can run up Angel's Landing, you can walk up it, you can crawl up it, you can go up whatever direction you want, but there are these cables that are attached through these, to these steel poles sunk deep into the rock, and you use those cables to help you get to the top. The Lord's Prayer is kind of like the cables that line a rock face. It is there to help you stay on the path and to protect you from falling off. You can crawl, you can run, you can walk, you can take different paths up to the top, but the Lord's Prayer is there to be for us a guide. 
And not only that, but Jesus puts the Lord's Prayer smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, and it's interesting, at least it's interesting to me, that the very center of the Sermon on the Mount, just like you see on page 11, the outline that I've put it in, the central line is forgive us of our debts as we forgive others. Forgive us of our failures. That is the centerpiece of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's significant for me because I don't know about you, but I, was a, I grew up as a professional Pharisee in the evangelical church. You be a good guy and God will love you more. And that is a damnable heresy. Because God does not love you any more than he already loves you because you are in Christ. And while we do want to manifest the fruits of good works, of course, we do those as a result of God's love, not in order to get it. And so Jesus is preaching this sermon to Pharisees, people who had had a long list of ways to be viewed by the world as holy and religious and right. And it's interesting that Jesus would stick that line, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is no room for self-righteousness in the kingdom of Jesus. Are you self-righteous? The older you get and the more you walk with Jesus, the more and more that question pierces you. Because I, I don't want to be self-righteous, but I am. And I need to learn how to pray. And so this sermon is helpful for me as, a, as I hope it's helpful for you. The Lord's Prayer is divided in half. Look at it if you have it before you. Notice that there are certain pronouns that Jesus uses. The first half, what's the pronoun that you most commonly see? Your. Your. Right? Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then the second half, or the second table, if you will, of the Lord's Prayer, uses the pronoun what? Us and our. So the first half of the Lord's Prayer is all about divine petitions, all about God the Father, all about the Lord. The second half of the prayer is all about, therefore, his people. And so I'm going to preach it along those two lines. Today we're going to think about the divine petitions, the first half of the Lord's Prayer. The next week we'll pick up with the second half of the Lord's Prayer. You ready? All right. You awake? Let's go. Our Father who art in heaven. Now, all of us have prayed this at football games growing up. All of us have said this prayer probably hundreds of times if you grew up in the South. But with very little fanfare, Jesus gives his disciples permission to use language that up until that point, only he could use. Jesus never prayed our Father when he was with the disciples before this. He prayed my Father or the Father. It was an absolute relationship. Jesus prayed my Father because the Father was his Father exclusively. And yet here, Jesus invites his disciples to learn to pray by saying, Our Father. He invites us into the relationship that only he shares with the Father in heaven. 
That is that God not only looks at Jesus and calls Jesus his son, but he looks at you and he looks at me. All those who trust in him by faith alone. And we're allowed to say to our Father in heaven, you are our Father. That's an amazing statement for Jesus to allow people to say. It's important for us too because the issue in prayer for most of you that have talked to me about prayer over the course of Trinity's life is not that you can pray. For many of you, it's what do I say? How do I pray? And it's one thing, there's a student of mine when I was a campus minister in the Northeast who got invited to George Bush's press conference one day at the White House. And she went and she said it was a big deal to get the invitation. But once I got invited into his presence, it was much, much harder for me to know what to say to him. And it's often that way with you and with me. You hear week after week here, friends, that you've been invited into his presence by faith alone. But once you are a Christian, what then do you say to him? You can say to him, our Father. There was a book that was written in the, 90, uh, in the, the 80s. It was a book um, that had a significant effect in Europe. The title of the book was On the Way to a Fatherless Society. And it describes in this book the notion of a father being a ghost-like figure that comes into children's lives only at night and also is mainly a parody to just poke fun at, much like much of our entertainment is today. And this author, who's not a Christian, argues in this secular book on the way to a fatherless society that what we need, what we need is the presence of good fathers or good father figures. Not that we need the absence of a bad father, but we need the positive presence of a good one. And though he wasn't a Christian, he illustrates exactly what this point is. That Jesus says to us, you have your father in heaven who comes to you, who is a good father, who loves you. Some of you have lived through the horrors of bad fathers. Whether how they treated your mother, whether how they treated you. Some of you have had unspeakable horrors with your fathers. But the solution, the healing there, friends, is not to remove all father figures from your life. It's actually to allow a good father in. And your father in heaven, the Lord himself, is that good father. He is our father who is in heaven, which means that he is holy and just and right. He is in heaven. He is ruling and reigning there. He is not the Father within us, as I heard prayed at Princeton when I was there. He is not the, the God who dwells within each human soul. He is the Father who is distinct from his creature. He is the creator. We are the creature. He is infinitely holy, but he has bridged that gap through Jesus, his only son, who has invited us to be sons and to call him our father. It's a big deal. Our father. Now, Jesus takes this 
address our Father, and then he moves into three petitions. Stay with me. He says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, hallowed be your name. What is a name? A name is an objective moniker giving to some reality. It's, a, it's the name that you take. There's nothing about Blake that is me. It's just the name that my parents gave me, Blake. It's my name. And I know myself as well as I know myself, which is let's say I don't really know myself that well, even though I've lived a while, and I think I do. But there are things about me that Lauren sees that I don't see. There are things about me that you see that I don't see very well. I have blind spots, and you help me with those. There's only one person in the world who has no blind spots. That is Jesus. And his Father has no blind spots. And Jesus says, hallowed be his name. That is, not the name that you want God to have, not the butler that you want to be at your service, not the God that you stick in your back pocket, but hallowed be his name. The word hallowed there is an old word that we rarely use except when we pray this prayer, but it comes from the Hebrew word kavod, which means weighty, to have girth. It's the word from which we get the New Testament word gloria. It's the word glory. The first way we are to learn to pray is to say, Father, oh good Father, will you glorify your name and will you show yourself to the world as you really are, not as we have made you to be? Because a God that we've just made to look like us can't challenge us or change us. He's just us. But a God who has revealed himself in Holy Scripture as he has his name has weight, has power, it has gravitas. To know God in his perfect self-awareness, to know God as he really is, is to begin to have hope. Because we shape hope by the things that we love and by the things we think will fix us. But when you begin to understand the Lord as he is, as he's revealed himself to be, then we begin to have hope. And how has he revealed himself? He's revealed himself chiefly, friends, as a good God. And I dare say that, that is probably the hardest thing for us to believe. We believe he exists, but it's hard for us to believe that he's good. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, may your glory spread through all the earth as you really are. May they know you, not as we've created you in our own minds, but as you've revealed yourself through Christ and in your word. Your kingdom come. Now, the word kingdom, together with the Old Testament word covenant, is probably the, the K-N-O-T-T-Y, the naughtiest, the hardest word to crack in all of Scripture. The, no the notion of God's kingdom come has been misinterpreted and misapplied through centuries. What does the kingdom of God mean? When it says your kingdom come, there are three aspects I want you to remember. 
When we pray our kingdom come, we are asking, first of all, for his kingdom to come to our hearts. That is, that we want Jesus to take up rule and reign in our hearts personally. And that manifests itself out through the practice of regular repentance, which then bleeds into piety and changed living. You begin to fast, you begin to pray, you begin to give joyfully because his kingdom is shed abroad in our hearts. If there's no signs of those fruits in your life, the question for you is, is his kingdom even in your heart? Because if it has a root, it will produce a fruit. We want him to dwell in our hearts, his kingdom to come and dwell in his people, his covenant people of God. But not only does his kingdom dwell in our hearts, his kingdom is in history. His kingdom is in history. You often hear about this where you say that God's people is to be the people who produce justice and who push out the, word, the, the arms of mercy into the world. The conservatives tend to overemphasize God's kingdom only in the heart. The liberals tend to grab hold of God's kingdom in the world and talk only about social justice and about meeting the needs of the poor. Jesus brings both together, actually. He says the kingdom takes root in your heart but it also takes root in history. There is no pie in the sky by and by for us. Like I know we are worshiping in a, in a school building, but we are worshiping here at a battleship to send you out into your respective fields to extend God's kingdom through the gifts he's given you as an attorney or a physician or as an engineer, whatever it may be. And we have hope because one day Christ will come again to make all things new. Do you remember that story in Acts chapter 3 where Peter and James and John healed a lame beggar at the beautiful gate? Do you remember that story? And he begins to leap for joy. And all these people go around and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not what you're to do around Solomon's portico. And so Peter preaches a sermon. And he says, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, kingdom of the heart. Because the time of the Lord's refreshing is coming when he will make everything new. It says literally that he will restore all things. That's the kingdom of history. So there's a kingdom of the heart, God opening your heart personally to believe. There's an aspect of God's kingdom that breaks out into real history and that he is bringing all of history to an end when he comes again to make everything new. And thirdly, and very importantly, there's an aspect of the kingdom that you can say the kingdom of homily, of sermon, of church. And that is that God's kingdom goes forth through the preaching of his word. That is a central point throughout the New Testament. In fact, the reformers, when Martin Luther said, how does it, was asked, how does the kingdom of God go forth? He says, brothers, would you pray for pure doctrine in our church? But not only that, would you therefore pray for faithful preachers of God's word? But not only that, would you pray for pre faithful preachers to use God's Bible? But not only that, would you pray that as they open up God's Bible, they will see the center of the Bible is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the center of that good news is the kingdom of God. 
that has, been, that has come to be writ large across the world in our hearts and in history through the proclamation of his word. Listen, sermons are just part of worship, yes, but they're more than that. They are the means through which God intends his kingdom to come through clear gospel preaching, through helping us recognize that we are not just called to be consumers in the church, but he is using you as much as he's using me in your respective fields to go and extend his kingdom out into the world. The kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. It is a kingdom of history. And it is a kingdom of homily or through the sacraments of the church. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, this is, of all of them, this is the toughest um, for me because I get this question as a pastor a lot. What is God's will for my life? You ever ask that of yourself? What is God's will here? And where God's word speaks very specifically, we can say this is God's will. But many times, the word doesn't tell you if you should buy the house on 142nd Street or the house on 132nd. It doesn't tell you, right? You have to use wisdom. What does it say when Jesus says, your will be done? In this context of the Lord's Prayer, what he means is that Jesus wants you to live out what he has just preached to the disciples. Namely, that he wants you to watch out for all the warnings of self-righteousness that he just gave you in chapter 5. And he wants you to be people who are very generous in providing for the poor, and he wants you to be people of prayer. Jesus is saying, your will be done means you obey my teaching. And the central point of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus wants you to become who you are if you're in Christ. So while God's will does not speak with great specificity about the circumstances that we so badly wish the Bible would speak to, it doesn't say sometimes with as much specificity as we want. The Bible nevertheless does speak and does give us wisdom. And you see this in Paul, for example, when he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I urge you therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. Then you will know what the will of the Lord is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. As Christmas approaches for you, are there things... Are there visions of grandeur? Are there ideas that you have that you feel like are satisfying you? That you feel like will satisfy you if you have them? Thy will be done is a call for us to say, Lord, we lay our lives before you. And we want to obey the Sermon on the Mount as you called us to obey it. And Jesus is singing over you, oh, I will give you the strength to do that, but do you trust me? And the sign of your trust in Jesus is not the number of quiet times you have in a given week, although that's great if you have many. It is the frequency of your repentance and recognizing that you cannot save yourself, but that all of the fruit of your life comes from the root of resting in Jesus Christ's righteousness alone. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
When we pray this prayer, we often say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, would apply just equally, not only to your will be done, but also to hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is longing, longing for the world to be restored to its good and right and beautiful state as it was before the fall. Father, you reign in heaven. Would you begin to reign in our hearts on earth? Would you help us to be people of your will, who submit our wills to you and who do not, like stubborn children, demand that you do what we want? Father, would you help us to recognize that you are a good Father, a loving Father who loves us and who sings over us. In Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, with this I'll close, you see these three ideas come out. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? God's name, glory. His kingdom, our hope. His will be done, his love for us shed abroad in our hearts. Friends, as we begin to prepare for Christmas, may you use the opportunities that are given to you in every advertisement, in every siren's call, to recognize that your greatest satisfaction is found in Christ alone, who is your Father, who has brought you in to speak to him as a child speaks to a tender and loving and good dad. Can you pray like that this week? Let's try it, shall we? Some of you who are concerned about how to pray, use this prayer to guide you. You can pray it verbatim if you want, but use it as a guide. Your Savior loves you, friends. Speak to him as though you believe that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do love your children. Father, thank you that you come to us. You did not stay far off, but in the incarnation of Jesus, you came to dwell with us, near us, to live our life, to die our death. Lord, help us to find that we will be restless until we find our rest in you. And help us to be a people who pray. Simply, briefly, in your name. Amen.